Hello. Hey, Jim. How are you, man? Good. How are you? Can yeah, you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Yeah, you sound great. Loud and clear. Hello, I'm Steve Joel, a radio host and Warhammer nut from New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of my podcast series, 40K Game Changes. No worries. I'm sorry about all the messing around. Have you guys just hit like daylight saving or something? Dude, it's like, okay, it's so, uh, so I didn't realize this, but not only do some places not have daylight savings, but daylight savings also has different days depending on where you are in the world. This series is supported by the Frontline Gaming Network, and I'm very grateful to them for that. The Frontline Gaming Store is where you get your tickets for the Atlantic City Open. The event is officially a super major now, and it would be amazing to be part of that, wouldn't it? There are just a handful of tickets left. If you're even thinking about going, you'd better be quick. Go to frontlinegaming.org or follow the link in the show notes to this episode. We've been playing in this, like tabletop simulator event with the uh uh in greek hammer like team canada so we scheduled the game before daylight savings so like he's like he's like okay it's this time now i'm like okay well it's this time here and the game was the next week so we schedule it but then we have daylight savings on sunday yeah and then um i get to the game and the guy's not there i'm like i'm like where is this guy this is episode 12 and today's guest spent a long time as the world's number one player and is a prize-winning painter as well and as you'll hear over the next 40 minutes, he has some great stories. Man, what's going on in the background for you? you got crime happening. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. I'm just... Uh, yeah, I live across the street from a fire department. <laughs> like, okay, as long as they're not coming to take you away, that's okay. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Just another thing to note before we start. Normally, I pride myself on the research that goes into finding out about every guest before we chat. But as you're about to hear, I messed this one up pretty big right at the very start. So let's meet today's guest. He is the winner of multiple majors, including the Wet Coast and Adepticon, as well as more GTs than you can shake a four stave or a black staff at. He was ITC champion in 2019 and ITC hobby track champion the same year. And he created a list that featured Plague Bearers and Thousand Sons characters that was copied by thousands and named after him all over the 40k world. He is, of course, Jim Vessel. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Thanks hey. for having me. And uh, just a small correction. Uh, oh. I actually came in second on the ITC going into 2019. Richard Siegler actually ended up winning it. Why yeah, did I yeah. think you were ITC champion then? For, for, <laughs> was... I'm not sure. I, was, I came in second. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, I'll take it. I'll pretend I am. <laughs> sure. Um, but hobby track champion that year, right? Which we'll, we can come to a little later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to start away from 40K, though, like quite a long way away. Sure. Um, after flirting with a career in law, Jim Vessel devoted himself entirely to food. You flirted with a career in law. Was that the first thing that you wanted to do? Uh, no, actually. Um, I, I don't know if I just watched a lot of sci-fi as a kid, but uh, I had this idea in my head that, and, and I was I was around the, the, I think around the time when they had first mapped like the, the human genome. I can't remember exactly what what age I was, but I found that super interesting. Like, and and obviously I watched a lot of things like Gattaca sci-fi. So I actually wanted to be a genetic engineer. That was like my very first kind of big career aspirations. And wow. my first year in university, yeah, my my first year in university is actually spent doing biochemistry. And uh, after 
realizing how much I absolutely hated it. Uh, the one, <laughs> the one course uh, that I took that was one of my electives that I found really interesting was actually um, an ethics course, a philosophy ethics course. Uh, and so that kind of led me into switching from a science major into uh, liberal arts. And I ended up doing my degree in uh, undergrad in applied ethics and philosophy. And, and my, my plan was to take that into law school. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, that's I don't know quite a journey. That what, is, what, that is a, yeah. <laughs> like, it's a, I, I feel like I wanted to say that what, what you've ended up doing feels like so far away from 40K, but then <laughs> what you went into university with, that's, that's a massive turnaround, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, I uh, I always loved food, and uh, I actually, my family grew up, like, I'm a first-generation immigrant to Canada. I was born in Istanbul and Turkey, and so I came to Canada when I was two years old. So Canada's all I've ever known, but my mom, uh, she was, you know, single mom raising two kids, barely spoke English, so we didn't grow up with very much money, and... Um, uh, I, so I always was hungry, right? right? Yes. And so in high school, uh, one of the courses that you could take was, and, and in, uh, it was like cooking classes. And so I used to always take them because you would make cakes, you would make <laughs> food, you'd make all sorts of other things, and then you could get to eat it. So yeah. for me, it was like an opportunity to uh, eat basically, right? It was an extra opportunity to get like some food. So, um, so that's actually kind of where my, I guess my cooking career started was it was in high school doing these kind of foods classes. And then when I, um, you know, I did my work experience, I think, I think I was a, a 12 or 13 years old. I, I washed dishes at a, a Ricky's restaurant. It's like a burger chain out, out in uh, North America. And so, um, when I went to university, um, I, uh, I basically had moved away. So I, I grew up in Vancouver and I, I'd moved to Victoria, British Columbia, which is just across the water. Um, and I moved back to Vancouver when I was 22. And in order to make friends, I decided, you know, I was like, you know, I like food. I'll, I'll get a job in a restaurant. And so I got a job as like a, like a dishwasher and then basically uh, worked that job while I went to school full time. So I, I, I moved out when I was 17, two days a week, I would go to school four courses. And then the other five days I would work full-time in the restaurant. So I was seven days a week. I was like either working or going to school. And, um, <clears throat> the reason, the big reason I decided not to end up actually pursuing law was because at the end of my, my degree, which took me about almost seven years because some semesters I would skip some semesters. I would take like one course just because, uh, I was exhausted and I needed to work more. Um, so my degree took a lot of time to kind of get through. And I think I was around 27 or 28 by the time, um, I was ready to go to law school and I'd been cooking this whole time. And so by the end of it, I was like, I was like a assistant chef to our, uh, chef. And they basically said to me, they're like, look, you have the talent, you have the ability, you have the, like, if you want to be a chef, you could be a chef but you have to commit to it. You can't do this. You know, you've had one foot in the door, one foot out the door this entire time. You can't do both. So make a decision. If you, And I knew at the time too, like if I go to law school, there's no way I'm going to be able to be working. You're going to have to take a much more student loans, et cetera. So that was the, that was the point where I realized having just been through almost seven years of school, that going to school for another five years, six <laughs> years was just not super enticing at the moment and i figured you know let's give this chef thing a shot and if it doesn't work out i can always go back to school and uh here we are like eight years later and i'm you know yeah uh, kind you're, of today you're, you're so. pretty well entrenched in this whole chef thing <laughs> yeah uh, i never looked back so yeah yeah so um man i'm fascinated though by this whole uh you wanted to be a 
genetic engineer. I think that's <laughs> that's just – and most kids, if you ask them – for me, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a superhero. And then I yeah. think, and then shortly after that, I thought, well, that's not realistic. I'll be a policeman. And mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, kids want to be astronauts and whatever. And then every now and then you come across someone who <laughs> wants to be a – uh, genetic engineer. I think that's amazing. Yeah. To, to, to be to be fair, it was not necessarily like a like I think I'd watched a, a few too many movies with like mad scientists. Yeah. The yeah, Island yeah. of Doctor Moreau. I don't know if you ever see, see any of those like old movies where like you know Frankenstein. I think yeah. I was my head my headspace was much more closer to those people than it was as some sort of like positive thing for humanity. <laughs> like I definitely had it in my brain that I was going to create like superhumans. Like and maybe that was why I love. <laughs> Uh, things like space marines as much, so much because I was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the like, the 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 uh, the Belsaurus call of uh, our, our century and right. great superhumans. So it was definitely not like out of a a sense of like goodwill and love of humanity. It was <laughs> it was out of a sense of like creating some cool monsters and creatures. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It, it's perfect because you kind of get <laughs> yeah. to do that now, which we will come back. As I say, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Um, but yeah. so I feel like outside of 40, in 40 K you play at the highest level, you paint at the highest level, but kind of outside of 40 K, it feels like you bring that same attitude to what you're doing in your business. Are you a perfectionist? Is that kind of your, your thing? Um, I definitely used to be. Um, so my position in my kind of like company, I guess that I, that I am involved in now, I oversee, uh, you know, we've been, I've been doing this, my specific role for about five years and, uh, I oversee about five different restaurants. Uh, I've opened six restaurants in four years, which is like pretty intense when you think about it. Yeah. And, but, uh, so I haven't actually been a, uh, like I do still a lot of like recipe development and business development, but I don't actually work as a chef in the restaurants. Um, and I haven't for about six, seven years. And, Uh, I would definitely say that when I used to be the chef, like when I was in a chef position where I was actually like working in the restaurant day in, day out, I, you know, I, uh, I had a bit of a reputation to being a bit of a hothead. I definitely, (laughs) I definitely had a very high standards. Like everyone was basically disappointing um, for a lot of my career. And I think that was something that drove me to kind of the reason I was able to kind of succeed and be as successful as I was is because I had that kind of very like, you know, I put in everything 110%. Yeah. Um, I will say over the last like four or five years, I've definitely mellowed out. I've definitely like learned to like relax a lot more and take a step back and not be so, um, not be so just like intense about it just because, um, with five, with five restaurants, trying to hold that amount of stress in your head for one restaurant is hard. Try doing it for a, a multi, multi-unit company with multiple restaurants across in, in two countries in, in multiple cities. Like it's just the amount of like stress and like, like anxiety that that can produce if, if you're trying to basically control too much and, yeah. and, and it's just, it's just impossible. And so I had, I had to learn really quickly to kind of let go of, let go of that and just really trust the people that I worked with. Um, and, and, and that was very hard for me because I'm still a bit of a control freak in a lot of ways. I like to be involved in just about everything that we do, even things that like, like our marketing team absolutely hates me because <laughs> I always, I always involve myself in like things that are, totally not my department or I'm not really responsible for, but they always know that I have an opinion or I have ideas or suggestions or how to do things better. So uh, they, sometimes we get into some pretty heated fights. <laughs> right. It's it it's hard for other people too, right? If you're a person who, as you say, you put 110% in and you have a really high standard and you have an expectation that other people will do the same, but but not everybody's not everybody's there. And it's it's really hard for everybody else to kind of match what you're doing. Yeah, I think um, I used to I used to just assume if someone didn't care as much as me, 
it's be- like if someone didn't put in as much work as me, it's because they just didn't care. Right. And that was like a very toxic uh, attitude to have. It's like, oh, if this person, you know, if they make a mistake or if they screw up, it's because they just don't care. Right. And so that was a very that was a very like, um, you know, bad kind of area time in my life. And, and I actually ended up even talking to uh, getting professional uh, advice on it, coaching and stuff, not like not like full psychological therapy right. or anything. But I definitely went through a phase where I, I just I had to really fight those demons. Um, and it was something that I've, I've I still struggle with sometimes. Right. Like if if someone does a, a poor job or uh, I, I still struggle with it. But I think uh, being more detached from the day to day has really helped me right. um, kind of m- manage that, I guess. So. And and I've I've read in, in different things, different interviews you've done or heard in different chats you've had with people where your work kind of, uh, and we're coming into the 40K area now, but I feel like a lot of people have to almost fight against their job to play the game because the job takes up so much, but it pays for the game we play. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, for you, you get to travel with your work, so that helps. But the more I talk to you now, the more I feel like your, your work takes up so much of you and so much time. Do you think do you think it works for 40k or against 40k? Does it help you play or does it do you have to fight against it to get some game time in? So definitely for it. And and the reason is is so I'm in a role like I I I'm an executive in our company and my my I work Monday to Friday, mostly 9 to 5. Uh when we're opening a restaurant uh like I, we were this September uh, I'm very hands-on. I'm in the restaurant, you know, maybe like 60, 70 hours a week for about six weeks, you know, in and around the opening, kind of being there full time. But then the rest of the year, I have an office, I have a desk, and that level of normalcy is very, very rare in hospitality, in in, in culinary, in in like uh, as a chef. That level of like consistency and normalcy is almost unheard of. And so, yeah. you know, most chefs they work you know, you always hear these horror stories, right? They're working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, whatever. I work a fairly normal schedule outside of like, you know, very small chunks where, you know, we're doing uh, like a restaurant opening, which it's not just me. It's like everyone in our organization, it's all hands on deck. Everyone's everyone's in there. So from that perspective, this job actually gives me way more time to work 40K because play 40K because when I used to be like a chef and actually work as a chef to you go from 10 in the morning till one in the morning. And it's like, when, when do you have time to paint? You right. know, you're just sleeping and eating and going to work. So this has actually been really good for my 40 K. And like one of the reasons I was able to travel so much in 2019 was because I have vacation and I can take weekends off and I can like, you know, oftentimes, yeah, I would be traveling for work a, a lot of the time. Obviously last year I did zero traveling for work. So, um, but uh, yeah, in general, it's been, it's been pretty good. So I've, I've definitely managed to sneak a few 40 K tournaments in as part of my work trips, which has always been, I was, I was so going to nice. ask that. Do you sometimes like with a, with, with work, you kind of spot an event that's going on and go, okay, we need to be in that town at that time. <laughs> you kind of wangle it so it works or, or does it work the other way? You go, well, I need to be there for work and look, Hey, there's an event that's going on not far from there. I can stay a few days longer. Yeah, so uh, I have a few stories of that. So um, uh, in 2018, we I opened a restaurant in Toronto, Ontario, and Toronto actually has a much bigger 40k scene than um, than Vancouver, which is on the west coast. And so I lived there for six months, uh, and I managed like literally, I as soon as I got to got to Toronto, I brought like my army, and I brought like a travel kit of like paints, so I could paint while I was uh, like living there. And uh, there was a local event. And I like put out, I post on the Facebook group that I just moved to Toronto and I, I, I is, is, can anyone give me a ride to the event? Cause we're talking Canada here. So 
this is a two and a half hour drive from the city. This is not right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is yeah. for people that are in like England, they're like, what? You drove two hours to an event. I'm like, yeah, that's like, that's nothing. I'll do that every day. But so I ended up meeting a group of uh, guys out in Toronto and that kind of kicked off like a very great set of friendships. And then I was literally going to events almost every week in Toronto, but then sometimes we'd have a GT in Vancouver and I would plan my my trips home because I come home every one, every month or a month and a half for like a few few days. I'd plan my trips back home on the events here. So I'd be playing events in Toronto and then fly home on uh, through work on my for events in Vancouver back and forth. Um, obviously, being in Toronto, I was close to things like the only reason I even went to Adepticon was because I was within a seven. I think it was an eight hour drive, which, again, sounds like a crazy amount of distance it to really go. Does. But in Canada, that's that's not that's not that crazy. Uh, and I think in America, too, that's probably not that crazy. So um, Adepticon was like eight hours from Toronto. Um, I went to New York quite a few times because that's just on the other side. Um, and then even uh, a GTI one in uh, California last year called Glass uh, Dice Hammer. I was down there for a, a, a trade show and uh, I decided to stay a few extra days because they had a GT kind of lined up with the trade show. So I stayed the extra few days, but I ended up winning the GT and then flying home on the Monday. So, you know, it's been, it's been really beneficial in that sense. I read that you did uh, something like 22 events in one year. Oh God, I think it was more than that. I mean, if you count RTTs, but it, it was up there. It, it, yeah. I felt like, it felt like two, at least twice a month I was going to an event. Um, sometimes three, there was, there was, uh, I think a, a span I had at one point where I went to an event six weeks in a row. Yeah. Uh, and so it was very, it was very like, I loved it, but it was like, there was very, like one of the things that I did enjoy about last year, despite all the craziness was just a very peaceful year. I spent it at home. I didn't travel almost, I didn't even get on a plane until, uh, I got on a plane in February last year and I didn't get on another plane again until January of this year. So right. I went almost the whole year without leaving the city. And that was just so nice. Like, it was so nice to just, I was, I was exhausted, to be honest, by the end of the season. Um, so it, it was nice to just have a, basically a year off yeah. from, from 40K. So. Um, let, let's go back to the beginning, because I do want to come back to the 2019 season and everything that happened mm -hmm. and all the, all the other stuff. But right back in the beginning, little Jim, were you a nerdy kid or uh, were you a D&D &D playing kid? What were you like, you know, in, the, in your younger years? So I was, um, I was a bit of a class clown. Um, and because of that, I was kind of friends with everyone. So I was one of those kids that uh, I would go play D&D &D with the nerds one day and uh, like, like Thursdays, and then I would go play basketball uh, with the cool kids. Then I would hang out with like the goth kids. Then I would go to the smoke pit and hang out with the smokers. Then some days I would hang out with like, you know, the weirdo art students. So like, I was very much a, a nomad. I, I never felt like I belonged to any one group. But because I was a bit of a class clown and, you know, I was, I was like, I was, I was quite a small, I was quite short. Like I'm 5'11 now, which isn't like super tall, but I didn't think I really got my growth spurt till I was like, I don't know, I probably, probably like 13 or 14. Like I, I was pretty, I, I feel like in, in grade 10, which I think in um, Canada, you're probably 15. I feel like I was still like 5'2". But uh, so I was always like this little tiny kid running around, just making jokes and then being part of everyone's group. So I was a little bit of a chameleon in that sense. So you're, you're kind of across all the groups. When did you get into 40K? So um, funny enough, I actually started with Warhammer Fantasy. So that was my first introduction to Warhammer. And that was, I believe, in, I want to say probably 1998, 1999 at this point. Um, I remember this was 5th edition Warhammer Fantasy. So I remember playing a Walking by Games Workshop uh, 
seeing the models walking in and then playing a mega battle, which is, I guess, those things that they had or like a demo game. I'm not, I can't quite remember. Uh, it was the old uh, box set with the Bretonians versus the Lizardmen. And the manager that gave me that game, this is actually a funny story. Uh, his name was Owen Curtis. And Owen Curtis still today works as the head manager of Games Workshop one of the games workshops in Vancouver. So wow. 23 years later, the guy, the guy's like a legend, like he's like gray haired now. And he was like this, like, and I was like a little 12, like 12 year old kid. But um, yeah, that was my start in 40 K uh, sorry, in um, into kind of games workshop. And then I didn't actually get into 40 K until third edition 40 K. And uh, that was primarily because um, I wanted to work for games workshop as a, like, obviously when you're, when you're 14 or 15 and you want to get a job, like a cool job you're thinking is like i'm gonna work at games workshop and so i started playing uh uh chaos space brains because obviously chaos that was my first fantasy army obviously it was gonna be my first uh 40k army and then obviously this was just before uh just around the time the lord of the rings um license they picked up so i think around 2001 2002 when the middle earth uh lord of the rings as it used to be called came out so that was my first touch in a 40k in, in third edition and uh, I did end up getting that job at Games Workshop. That was a that was a very very cool cool time in my life working at Games Workshop when I was like probably 16 to 19 for almost two and a half years, and it was like the greatest job you could have as a 16 year old, uh, being a Games Workshop employee, like getting to paint for for money and playing games and just hanging out in the store all day. It was it was an amazing job. So um, and I have so many fond memories from that time. But I and then after that I went to university and I kind of quit for quite a while. So I still. I stopped playing Warhammer Fantasy and and 40K. I basically got out of the hobby. I kept everything, so I put everything in my parents' basement. You guys have heard this story probably a thousand times. Gotten into girls, got into drinking, you know, <laughs> did my university. Like it's like the pretty pretty similar story yeah, that yeah. everyone. But like I always kept I always kept my tabs on the hobby. Like you know, I had a few war, old Warhammer forums that I like. Uh, um, I think it's called the Warseer, maybe Daka Daka, uh, Bolter and Chainsword. These were like forums that I, I still had in my bookmarks. And every once in a while, I'd pop in and kind of see what was going on. But didn't really get back into it until uh, 8th edition Fantasy. And then that kind of drew me back in um, around six years six years ago, back into the hobby. And that was finally at a, I was finally at a time where I had time and money. And I was like, you know, wanting to do some stuff. And so I went and literally you know, grabbed all my paints and stuff from my parents' basement and had almost all my hobby stuff still. So it was a very, fairly easy thing to just start buying stuff and painting. And as soon as I picked up the brush, it was like love, love at second sight. Like it was like, it was like re, 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 revisiting a lost love. So I, I was hooked right away. Um, and I did fantasy for a while. And then obviously uh, that story, uh, we all know how that story ended with the Age of Sigmar. And that kicked me back out of the hobby for a few years. And then obviously, uh, I started getting kind of started reading. Um, actually, the thing that got me into 40K was I took a two month trip to Europe and I started reading the Horus Heresy series while I was in Europe. And I'd never read any of the books and I didn't play 40K that much, but I was literally in Europe and I think I started two months in. So I started on the first book and I think I was like 13 books finished by the time I got home after two months. So, wow. like, whenever I was traveling on a plane, and I, I just remember being in Europe. I was like in Ibiza, and I could think like, oh, I want to get home and play 40k. Like, that wow. was like literally like where my headspace was at. Wow. I was like, I can't wait to get home and like paint models and stuff. <laughs> like partying in Ibiza. So um, when I got back, I kind of uh, this was just at the time um, when Seventh Edition was winding down, 
And so I, I waited a little bit. I started painting, but I didn't actually start playing till the drop of eighth edition. Um, I love the idea that you're at some party in Ibiza and getting invited to some after party and you're going, no, you know what? I've got to paint models. I'll see you guys later. That's yeah. so good. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, you pick up the paintbrush and you're, you're, you're back into it. By the way, if you're a chaos uh, person, you know, a fan of chaos, reading those first few Horus Heresy books, the Aaron Dembski bowden stuff is, mm-hmm. man, that had to be. That had to be amazing. Of course, you're going to get into 40K. Anytime you read a book and you connect with it, I was the same reading um, the Beast Arises series. I'm like, man, I have to start Imperial Fists. No, I have to start Black Templars. No, I have to start. You know, every time I read an inspiring story, I go, I want to start that army. Uh, Yeah, it was funny. Like, I always think about when I really, like, I've always been really big into the background for fantasy and 40K, but I've always found the 40K background a lot more interesting. You know, fantasy was was a little bit stale. It's gotten, obviously, AOS is the background. They've done a lot better job in the last, uh, you know, two or three years, but 40K has always had the way better, cooler background. And I remember literally being, like, 13 and at a, at a Red Robin, which is, like, a burger chain out here, trying to explain the Horus Heresy to my dad, and him just, like, I was like, yeah, there's these 20 Primarchs and kind of going through this whole, like, you know, he was trying to be like a good dad showing interest. Yeah. Uh, it didn't end up, didn't end up working out between me and my dad. He's, <laughs> we're a bit estranged these days, but at the time, he, I think he was like trying to be like, you know, like, oh, like, here's something my son's interested. Let me show some interest. Yeah. And I just remember like literally frothing at the mouth, explaining the Horus Heresy to him and just being like so hyped about it. And I was like 14. So it was very natural for me to like when the book started coming out for me to like jump into the books really quickly as yeah. well. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so the, then you get into the tournament scene. So I, I feel like you were painting for a bit and you were enjoying maybe playing some games. When did you uh, get into the tournament scene? Was that like a straightaway thing or did you avoid that for a bit? How did that work out? Yeah, so um, so when I played fantasy, uh, I was pretty competitive. Uh, even in my my first go before I quit, like I actually ended up winning like the a, a few grand ter- Warhammer Grand tournaments, which is what Games Workshop used to run back in the day. Uh, I actually won my first best painted in 2003 at the Calgary Grand Tournament. I think I was like 16 and a half or 17 years old. So and I painted an entire nonmetallic metal beastman army, which in retrospect is like totally mental. Yeah. Um, uh, at six, at like 17, like I was like, it was bizarre. Um, and, uh, so I was always into the event. And then with, with fantasy two, I actually had, uh, uh, we had like basically like the, um, like the North American, like worlds or whatever. And I was supposed to go to, to represent team Canada for that. And then it got canceled. Like they blew up the edition basically that year. So they, they didn't end up having the event. So when I got back into 40 K, um, I definitely took me a little while to get playing competitively. I knew I wanted to play competitively, but I have had for the longest rule uh, that I won't play with unpainted models. Um, And that's even for practice. So that's something that I still very much practice. And so that means usually I'm not quite uh, as fast on the like meta, like the meta as as a lot of people. Um, And I, I won't, I, and I will never play with models that I've like, put a half-hearted paint job in like i paint everything to the same high standard whether it's you know a cultist or a primark for the most part and so it's really hard for me to uh quickly move like i'm a bit of a, a slow ship in that in that regard but um once i kind of get going um you know I'm, I'm usually pretty like hyped up about it and so that was kind of i think my first 40k event was i want to say like december 2017 using index thousand suns um, and I remember losing the game very badly uh, <laughs> yeah. my first like two games. So yeah, yeah. But the um, so if that's 2017, 
by 2019, yeah. you're, excuse me, Richard Siegler, second place in the ITC. That's a massive and very fast-moving rise up the ranks. Uh, and I know you played a lot of events, but still, is it? do we call that an overnight success or did a lot of background work go on early days to get you up to a level where you're really competitive? Or did you just slot right in and start smashing people straight away? Well, I think, um, so I'd mentioned earlier that I'd moved to Toronto uh, in the summer of 2018. And the first half, as I, as I said, so the first half, I played my first tournament in like, 2017 December and then the first half of the year I was in Vancouver and Vancouver as I said I think I had two or three other events when I moved to Toronto uh, actually that year at wet coast which is an event I ended up winning the following year I didn't even make it to the second day because we got so drunk on the uh uh the first night I just ended up leaving my army at the at the event and not even making it to the second day like that was the kind of player I was back then so I was not that serious about uh, and I ended up having to go to the hotel like three days after the event to get my army um the the guys had packed it up very very like nicely for me so that was that was where i was in my game i was very much like the guy that would go you know just just drink my face off and it wasn't until i moved to toronto where i started playing with like a lot of the etc guys the lovely you know scaries out there uh obviously there's there's a much higher caliber of player out there and that was what really kind of and, and obviously just having events rtts gts and just being that that just totally immersed in that tournament circuit uh, I think even in the tail half of that year, I th- I think I, I did like three tournaments in the first half of 2018. And then I did like 14 in the second six months, right? Like the second half. And it was just because I, I started going to events with these guys. And I, and, and that was re- re- where it really tur- turned on for me. And um, yeah, and then it, like it, I just kind of p- kept pushing myself, kept pushing myself. And uh, I think my first actual GT win was not till like the January of 2019. And then I ended up winning like four GTs in a row, including Adepticon, I think was one of them. So that was like a weird kind of run, I guess. Wow. And then, so was this, the Jim Vessel list, we've got to talk about the list. Mm -hmm. Um, Did this come to you in a stroke of genius or was it, uh, again, a a thing that you kind of had to take things in, take things out, sort of, or was you just woke up one day and went, you know what, I think this would work, this concept. Do you want to know the the real truth? Breaking, uh, <laughs> oh my like god, exclusive here for you, Steve. Yes, so yes, please. I, 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 yeah. So this is not like this whole list was not like my initial creation. In fact, for the longest time, I refused including any Nurgle. I I used to hate Nurgle. I was like, God, the models are ugly. They're so gross. I've always been a Slanesh and Zinch player because I just love the color schemes. I love the bright contrast. I love the pastels. So for for the longest time, I resisted putting any Nurgle in my army. And then I remember putting in 30 Plague Bearers once. And I was like, oh, let me try these Plague Bearers out. Uh, everyone's saying they're good. And this is, again, it, it wasn't me coming to this. People were like, Plague Bearers are really good. And I'm like, all right, I'll give 30 a try, see how I like it. And literally, I was like, oh, my God, these are so good. And so immediately, I went and bought another 30, painted those, right? Uh, and then just from there, the list kind of evolved. Um, it wasn't so much that, like, I sat there, came up with the list, like, People told like people kind of told me certain parts were good. Everyone knew Zinch Demon Princes were good and Thousand Suns were good. And I still I already played Thousand Suns, so I knew that. And the missing element for me was the Nurgle. And that was something that I was very resistant to at first because I just never liked Nurgle units. I just didn't like how they looked. I didn't like the models. And then after I put that first 30 Plague Bears, it was like a drug. I was like, all right, give me another 30. Give me the Nurglings. Give me the Sloppity Bob Piper. And it just kind of went from there. And then from there, I kind of just did a lot of different versions of the list. 
uh, adjusting it to play my, my play style. So the Corn Demon Prince or the Contemptor Sea Beam Dreadnought, which is very unique. Like people were like, what the hell is this thing? Um, those are kind of very Jim Vessel touches. Um, but, I, you know, to be the truth, I've never been the guy that plays the Bleeding, uh, bleeding Edge medalists because I just I generally kind of let people fall on their face a little bit and then I'm very good at taking a list and then refining it and playing it at a high level and playing very technical but I've never been the person I'm you know I'm not Sean Naden right like I cannot I cannot create a list out of you know paper clips and rubber bands and go win a major with it which is basically what Sean Naden does so right so then what happens you know you've got this list it's a great list and you win stuff but then people figure out or it gets it either gets nerfed or people figure out how to beat it or maybe a combo of both then right. what do you do well, for me, like what actually happened for me, and you know, this really belays like my second half of my season last year uh, in 2019, which was two things happened. A, I was I had been on the top of the ITC for almost the entire season, so I think for from like from the from the time I won Adepticon to probably the um, Pro Tabletop Tournament, which I believe was in November or December of 2019. So for almost like nine months. I was at the top of the ITC rankings, and I think uh, Richard had slowly started to put together his wins. And eventually, after that win, he surpassed me. And then basically, it came down to LVO. So whichever one of us basically were going to do better. But what happened is around August of that year, I just kind of was like, you know what? I want to start playing other things and playing with other armies and other lists and, and start kind of just having having more fun. Because that list, you know, it's effective, but it's extremely tiring to play you know you're talking almost 100 110 models and also this was right around the times that things like orcs had come out with the um you know double uh double shooting ludas yeah. things like yanari were, were were just destroying everyone with spears like yanari was always one of my hardest matchups so there's and you know i could still beat yanari and i know yanari at the time was a bit of a boogeyman my list actually still had all the tools to beat yanari but like it was, it was always a difficult so i was finding like you know at at, at the time Basically, unless I won LVO, there's basically almost nowhere for me to go points-wise. And so I started playing more fun lists. Uh, I, I played quite a bit of the new stuff from, um, like, the Vigilists at the time had come out. So I was playing, like, Daredeo Dreadnoughts from The Purge, uh, Care of Don Husen. I was playing, uh, like, Knights with Magnus and Morty. Like, that was fun. Like, just, just those fun, like, kind of throwaway lists. And then in September... And uh, I went to open a restaurant. So for basically September to December of that year, I was totally out of the scene. Like I didn't play in a single, I don't think I played in maybe one, I maybe played in one event. So um, my 40K acumen was quite rusty. Uh, and then right around the end of the year is when the possessed, possessed bomb list started to kind of come into vogue. And, you know, I was hearing whispers of that. So, um, and Space Marines had come on the scene as well. The new Space Marine 8th edition, this was like Iron Hands right. Day. So, the list was just in a decline and I was very busy. And so I didn't get a lot of practice. And so going into LVO, uh, I painted the possessed list, but I think I'd played two games with it. And it was definitely not not my style. It was very different than the style of this I've been playing all year. And I definitely struggled with that um, kind of towards the tail end of the season. Uh, I just didn't have enough practice in. And, you know, I was so busy with work. That was that was a time of my life where work was a big, big priority. And so, you know, I, I didn't really care. I, I was very proud of like how I, had kind of done that year and i didn't i didn't think that i had anything else to prove at that point and you know winning lvo even if you're in the top 10 of the the itc is extremely hard so it's it's yeah. probably one of the hardest events in the world so i don't feel any sort of like uh i went in with very low expectations 
Um, and I was actually quite happy that I was second because that meant all the pressure was on Richard instead of me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think in, in any universe, second in the ITC is is amazing. Um, the other thing, uh, there's a few other little things I want to touch on or, or ask about if I can. Uh, about a year or so back, there was a wee bit of panic about a stolen army at Pearson Airport, which I only saw mm-hmm. on some sort of Reddit feed. What happened there? Or was that actually a thing or is that just made up on the internet? No, that's 100% a thing. So so I was flying home from, uh, I'm just trying to think, uh, the Berry Bash. Uh, this was basically three weeks after I got back from Adepticon. I played in the Berry Bash. I actually ended up losing to TJ at the top table in the final. Um, and I was in Pearson. I was exhausted. And I, I'm, at the, I'm at the gift shop. And usually I'm like, I'm super protective of my army. But I'm at the gift shop. I was going to get a bottle of water. And I literally... Uh, my my army bag was basically probably about a foot away from me, so not not like far away. I didn't leave it like in another room. It was literally like maybe like a foot slightly out of my line of sight, and a, a guy came up to me and like distracted me for like two seconds. He asked me a question. I turned to him to the other side, and then I turned back forward. I paid for my water and I turned around, and my army bag was gone. And I like immediately went into this like crazy panic. I was like, like I, it, there's this feeling that hits you when something like that happens where you don't quite believe that what's just happened. Cause like you hear about people getting their luggage stolen and I, I have too. And so I'm very, I'm usually very, very careful in the airport. And obviously you never think it's going to happen to you, especially like right from out, out from under you. It's one thing to leave your bag unintended and someone to take it, you know, for, as far as I concerned, I was like, it was like one of those scams or the distraction scams yeah. where people see that you have a bag and then you're actually a mark, right? This wasn't a simple case of me just misplacing and someone taking it. It was like literally someone like, kind of singled me out they saw my army bag probably thought it was like film equipment or camera equipment and then they like pulled off like a, a heist so sh- here i was running around the airport trying to find find an army to no avail talk to the cops nothing happened and then long story short my plane is boarding so I, I had to get on the plane i couldn't couldn't stay uh, i was like the most devastating plane ride of my life because i couldn't talk to anyone i could obviously <laughs> i'm on the plane so uh there's five like i, I lose five hours that i could have been looking for this army and um, I put in a like lost baggage report to Pearson and all this stuff. Yeah, long story short, I, I'd given up on the army at that point because uh, they, they Pearson kept calling me saying there's nothing found. And then um, I, st- I was like, you know what? I have an event in like a month. I'm going to start painting a new army. So I literally oh. started this army painting project where I was like, you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to let this ruin my season. I'm going to I'm going to paint a new army. And that's and that's what I did. And, you know, I had some really generous people reach out, help me out with uh Dan from Red Dragon Games in um, Ontario actually like donated, like literally donated me a few thousand points of stuff. Uh, the guys from Creature Caster were really like just lots of people reaching out. So many people messaged me saying they had models if they need if I needed models. Like the 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 the, the thing that sucked was losing my army, but one of the the good parts was just the uh, the community support. And I like I've never been someone that's been super like. I don't want to say like popular, but like I've never felt like I'd be that kind of person that people would care about uh, because I'm, I've felt fairly unspectacular for anything. And so seeing that level of like care and uh, like just outreach from the community was like super, super um, like it was super just like inspiring, I guess, and like really heartwarming. And like it just really like it just really made me feel really good. And it really took the sting off because yeah. I'd never I'd never felt or experienced anything like that where like random strangers were literally 
trying to like help me out and that was just like it was just like really emotional it was like a really emotional experience because it was like it was so hard to process like what was happening and you know and sure enough uh about three and a half weeks later i get a call from the airport we think we might have your stuff and i was like i didn't want to believe it but i i sent one of my toronto friends out to the airport to get it and sure enough uh they said they found it abandoned in one of the lounges like someone had taken it yeah. opened it and then ditched it so that was that was an intense experience so i'm very grateful i got it back yeah yeah but it is amazing the community right when they when the i feel like this community that we're a part of when they step up it's it's amazing people are people in this community are generous yeah it's 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 been it's been really weird like uh i've been involved in lots of charity events over the years and I've done a lot of like donations um, and a lot of the events that we run out in BC, especially there's always generally a charity component, whether it's some, some of the proceeds or there's raffles or whatever. And so I, I guess I didn't really realize that how rare that is. Like I, I think a lot of people thought, think, or, or thought that like that happens in all sorts of communities, different, different types of genres. But I actually feel like that's a very like wargaming thing to be so involved in like charity work and like there's so many great uh, organizations that do, you know, look at Nova, right? Like it's one of the biggest, yeah. biggest in the biggest charity kind of organization. It started as a charity, right? And it's one of the biggest events in the world. So I, you know, I, I really appreciate that about our community and, and just this, like this kind of sense of goodwill, I guess, um, of always trying to do, do good while, while we enjoy what we enjoy. So the other thing I want to ask you about was team Canada. Um, mm -hmm. I, I saw you were selected for Team Canada and then I went to look at results for Team Canada and your name wasn't on the list. We, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I don't know if anything went down. Or Are, are you part of Team Canada or are you in the WTC or slash ETC team? Is that a thing or not? <laughs> yeah. So it's, Well, so first of all, uh, just for those of you that don't know, they just announced today that the WTC for 2021 has been cancelled. that. And obviously, yeah. obviously last year it was cancelled as well. Uh, so my initial... Initially, I was supposed to play with them on twenty in twenty nineteen, um, but I just uh, I couldn't. I essentially I couldn't make it. Like originally, I was I was supposed to be on the team, and and just I just didn't want to. Um, you know, it was a very expensive trip at the time, and I'd already been playing so much ITC uh, that like I just wasn't I wasn't able to put in the time and effort that I really wanted. So I ended up not being part of the team for 2019, even though I was given uh, extended invite. And then I have been on the team the last two years, but obviously there hasn't been a WTC. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'm hoping, and I, you know, we're, we're still kind of, we're all in a chat together and I'm hoping for 2021, finally I'll get my, my chance after three years of waiting. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm still part of the team. Absolutely. Um, it's just right now with, uh, with the pandemic, everything's kind of, uh, kind of thrown in the loop. So I feel uh, the other thing I wanted to do was, um, can we give a plug to duplicity? paint studios what's your project at the moment yeah so i've been um you know i've always done a little bit of commission work i'm, I'm not a commission painter so i just want to make that really clear um but i did start a uh twitch channel youtube channel called duplicity paint and it's basically the home for you know a weekly podcast that i'm doing with david koska who's based out of buffalo he's like a similar similar-minded hobbyist and gamer as me so we're both very into painting and competitive gaming and then also be doing things like uh i've been broadcasting my stream games for on tts and obviously just uh i've been doing nightly streams paint streams and just hanging out and uh trying to do hobby tips and just kind of you know with with covid it's been a a, a thing that i've been wanting to do for a while but i just haven't had the you know, finally decided to get off my butt and kind of put it together. So, um, you know, and, and I've been doing some commission painting as well, which is a whole other whole other beast that um, has been has been enjoyable as well. So, uh, you know, if you guys uh, 
check me out on Twitch and YouTube. It's Duplicity Paint on Twitch and Duplicity Paint Studio on YouTube. Uh, I'm a big fan of your paintwork as well. Like the, the the painting you do is amazing. I'm really amazed to hear that you won't play with even in practice games with armies that are that are not painted. You're like the man that adds a lot onto your prep time, but it's just uh, it's so cool that someone has that stand and, and you stick to it. Yeah, I think um, when I so back when I started playing Warhammer, you weren't even allowed to play in Games Workshop with unpainted, so right. that was a rule that they kind of uh, got rid of like much later. But I kind of grew up in the culture of like if you if you play with unpainted, it's like a shameful, and so that's always stuck with me. Um, and you know, I think you know, you had mentioned that I came second. Um, in ITC, which is something that I'm incredibly proud of. Yeah. But the thing that I'm more proud of is coming second and also coming first in the hobby track is being able to um, be show that it is possible to be a great hobbyist, to really care about your painting and your, you know, like all those kind of things, things that aren't, you know, a lot of people think competitive gamers don't care about and also, you know, play at the highest level. I think that's something that I'm more proud of than any specific result is just being able to show that, you know, you know, and there's the the true renaissance man. And, I, you know, if people like Sean Naden, who have won that award, I think every year at LVO since they've attended, uh, those guys are people that I look up to because for me, that is the, the highest level of the hobby is being able to maintain both a great competitive uh, kind of edge and also being able to be a great hobbyist. And it doesn't mean you have to be a good painter because not everyone is, you know, born with that kind of talent. And I certainly wasn't. Um, some of my, you know, I posted a few of my older models from 20, 2001 on my Instagram to just to show people my progression. And so, uh, but I am very proud of the fact that uh, I, I just, I put in that much effort in both sides of the hobby. So there are, it, whenever your name has come up with uh, other people who, who are, you know, when I'm talking about uh, people I want to have on the podcast, I bring up your name and every single person is like, you know what, there's just no one who can, who can paint like that and play like that. There, are, It's very rare to find someone who paints as well as you do and also plays at the very high level you play at. People tend to be one or the other. You're the guy that proves that you can do it, uh, although I don't, I don't know if very many people could do it like you do. But listen, uh, and and my bad for not touching more on the fact or, or focusing more on the fact that you won that hobby track because that is such a big part of, of who you are and, and how you're perceived in the community. So... Uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I am a fan, and um, and I, I love your work, and I, I love watching your games that you play and the spirit you play them in. Just keep it up. All right. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. My thanks to Jim Vessel for taking the time to chat today. If you enjoyed this episode, go find 40K Game Changers on Facebook or leave a review on iTunes, or let me know what you think in the comments on my website, 40kgamechangers.com. Every follow, every bit of feedback really helps me out, and I'd, I'd appreciate it. Uh, and make sure you get to the Frontline Gaming Store for your tickets to the Atlantic City Open. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Steve Joel, and this has been 40K Game Changers.